morning. Welcome to the month of May. If you can believe it or not, we are already in the month of May. And uh, I got to tell you, I'm ready to preach this morning. I'm excited to preach this morning, um, mostly because I think this series is just going to be fun and funny. And it's kind of strange to think about why on earth in church would we take so much time and take so much effort to talk about why like, what are the things that Jesus didn't say? And, and the truth of the matter is, is that there are, you know, four main books of the Bible that we get to learn and talk about what does Jesus say. And, and those are called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and, and Jesus' words are written about in the red letters. And the things that he says are otherworldly. And they have the power to change, transform every area of our lives, but it requires that we know what he said. And sometimes the funnest way to realize what he said was to talk about things that he didn't say. And so today, the, the, the topic of today's service is go into the world and do what makes you happy. Do what makes you happy. Some other things I'll tell you that Jesus didn't say is, you know, whoever wants to be my disciple must affirm themselves, avoid the cross, and follow their own heart. <laughs> Ask, and it will be given to you because God is your celestial sugar daddy and is here to do whatever you need him to do. And, and, and it's funny to talk about these things, but how valuable is it for us? Because it's like this video just talked to us about. We can approach so much of our life through the wrong filters. And we see this actually happening as we jump into service today. Let's, let's actually say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this amazing time that you've given to us. We know that every moment that we live, every breath that we breathe is, is a wonderful and gracious gift from you. We ask that you'd be with us, this, with us this morning, even on this bittersweet day as we Say goodbye to one of our own, Julia Eli. She's been a LCSM student for two years. She's heading back west-ish, going back home. And we just pray, Lord, your amazing, wonderful purpose and plan for the rest of her lives. And we know that we'll see her again. We ask for your blessings today in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wanted to take a little bit of time in a passage of Scripture that's fairly familiar to us, fairly Fairly commonly read, the majority of us, if we've been in church for any length of time, we will have heard of this exchange that happens between Jesus and a woman. And we find this scripture in John chapter 8, and it begins in verse 2, and it says this. It says, at dawn, he, he being Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat before them to teach. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, so these were the... These were the religious, these were the holy people of the day. The, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, brought a woman caught in adultery. So let's pause for a second and talk about what this must have felt like for Jesus. So Jesus would have been doing a lot like what I'm doing right now. He would have been standing up somewhere. Unfortunately, he, we couldn't gather in as many numbers as probably Jesus had at this point. But Jesus would have been doing a lot like what I'm doing, standing up and preaching a message. And I could only imagine how it would feel if someone barges through the doors that are right in front of me, dragging in front of me a woman half naked, accusing her of committing adultery. 
And this is what's happening in, in this moment that Jesus is having is this woman is dragged before him. And, you know, if you're like me and you like to ask questions in the scripture, this passage of scripture immediately raises a few questions. First question being, where's the man, right? I mean, last I checked, adultery takes two, right? The next question I have is, how did they catch the woman in the middle of the act? Like, these must be some peeping toms, right? But, but I mean, nonetheless, my apologies if your name is Tom. I'm not saying that you're peeping all the time. But here's the thing, she's, she's caught in the act, She's dragged before all these people, and Scripture says that she's basically naked. And, and, and here's something that's very telling about the, the men who drag her out into the street is, is they didn't really care about the woman. They didn't care about the fact that they were dragging her out into the street, that they were shaming her and humiliating her in this moment, but they were just using her as a way to trap Jesus, right? Because this is what the scripture goes on to say. It says, they drag her out and they, they, they make her stand before the group. It says, finishing verse three there. In verse four, it says, and, Jesus, and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So she was guilty. And in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? And it says this, they were using this question to trap Jesus in order to have a basis for accusing him. So Jesus finds himself in a very complicated moment right now because one, this woman is guilty. She was caught in the act of adultery and under the law of Moses that was given to them, you know, her, the punishment for her guilt was that she was to be stoned. They weren't wrongfully accusing her, but also, we, so we see that there's that side of it, but then also that if Jesus was to, you know, uh, agree, you know, just try to let her go, then he would have been condoning adultery. So on one hand, he loses his loving reputation of being this gracious and merciful man, and on the other hand, if he lets her go, he's condoning the adultery that she's in. So he's in a complicated situation. And what Jesus does, because Jesus, like we said, is otherworldly. His wisdom and knowledge is beyond our understanding. It says this in John chapter 8, verse 6. It says, he bent down, Jesus bent down, and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, this statement has really caused questions to happen throughout the millennia as we try to understand what was Jesus writing, right? And, and in later manuscripts, it goes on to talk about that Jesus, what he's doing is he's writing down the sins of the accusers. And and, and there's, there's reason why we would believe this is that the, there's two words that in, in the ancient days when they would write down the word to write, there was two different ways that they would use it. There's one word, it's called, the word is grephin, and it simply means to write down. And the word that was used in this passage of scripture isn't just the word grephin, but it's the word kata 
griffin. And the word kata means against, so it's simply, if you simply translate it, he's just writing down the records against someone. So, so imagine this in modern day context. You're standing there thinking that you have now caught Jesus and you're waiting for his response and he does something strange. He sits on the ground and starts writing. But then you start noticing he starts writing your name, Phil, right? Now, how many of you know if your name was Phil, you'd be a little bit concerned in this moment. And then after he writes Phil, because he's the son of God, the savior of the world and knows everything, he starts writing down your recent Google search history, right? And you start seeing him write down like bikinibods.com. How many of you know the only logical thing Phil could do in this moment is drop his stone and run the other direction in hopes that proximity will make Jesus stop writing these things down? So it says in verse 7, when they, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, even in this modern translation of this statement of without sin, it doesn't just mean the person who is without sin, who hasn't sinned. This statement is better translated, he who is without even wanting to sin. Because how many of you know, sometimes, you know, you do the right thing, but you really want to do the wrong thing. You know, how many of you, you know, you know that you should do something and so you do it, but it takes every ounce of strength and willpower in you to do the right thing. How many of you know it's easier to see the sins in others and cover up and overlook the sin in our own life? And, and this is what Jesus is addressing in this moment with these people. And in verse 8, it says this, again, he stoops down and wrote on the ground. And so he gets back to writing, Phil. <laughs> it says, at this, right, because Phil's not taking any chances anymore. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Verse 10 says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And her response to Jesus is, no one, sir. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and do whatever makes you happy. Go now and, you know, follow your heart. And go now and, and just do whatever you want to do because it doesn't matter what you do. You know, like you do you, boo, and I'll do me and let's just all be happy. And that's not what Jesus says. Jesus instructs her. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. Right, you'll notice how he says in this, go now, go now. There's a, there's a sense of urgency. There's, a, there's this urgency behind the tone of Jesus to, to leave now, leave now your life of sin and, and be different, be, be freed from those things that have enslaved you. Listen, woman, you don't have to live your life in shame, but go now, don't take another moment living in this sin. 
And in this discourse, it, it raises the question to each of us, right? Why, why do we give into the temptation of sin, right? And the answer is pretty simple, is that it, it looks fun, right? Doesn't it? I mean, sin oftentimes just sounds fun. And the truth of the matter is, if, if you're like me, you'll know that sin actually is fun, right? I mean, like how many of you out there right now, right? Like, no, you're alone in your house. How many of you would say, yeah, you know what? Sin is, it is fun. And, and, and even the book of Hebrews says this, is that Hebrews calls sin fleeting pleasure. And I realized something that, that sin promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God and eventual pain to you. Right, that when we sin, it looks good, it, it seems good, it seems like doing whatever we wanna do is the right thing to do in the moment. But it comes at the cost of disobedience to God and eventual pain to us. And so let's talk about this, the woman who's caught in adultery. I feel bad for her. I would love to know her name, that we don't have to refer to her this way. Because I like to get into the mind of characters, because oftentimes we can breeze through a story, we can breeze through a passage, and we can kind of assign certain labels to this person, and we don't ever get into the mind of the, the actual woman, and sometimes we can miss the nuances and how oftentimes we can find ourselves in the story. Because here's the, here's the truth about this woman. Like, I mean, she technically could have woke up that morning thinking like, I've decided, you know, I'm just, I, I, I'm on a mission to ruin someone's marriage today. Like I am evil and my intentions are evil and I just wanna do whatever I, I mean, chances are she could have been that way. I think that sometimes that's the way that she's portrayed in scripture, that she's just seeking out the first marriage that she can destroy, but odds are, you know, that's, that's, that's not who she was. You know, odds are, I mean, here's the thing, if we were to play the odds, she was a decent, you know, she was a nice woman. Right, that, that, you know, in a modern context, we could say something like, you know, she got married and there was a lot of passion in her marriage. And then a few years went by, maybe they had a couple of kids and their marriage just went flat, right? It just was lifeless. And, you know, we don't know about the woman's husband. You know, maybe her husband was a really inattentive guy. You know, maybe he promised a lot of things and then she just wakes up day after day feeling taken for granted. Maybe he's verbally abusive to her. Maybe he's physically abusive and, and she's just lived with this day after day. And, you know, so then she goes and, and gets a job, let's say, to, you know, get out of the house and make herself feel good. And then while she's working in her job, you know, her cubicle is next to this really, really nice guy. Right, and he, he compliments her work, and, and he vocally loves her ideas. And I mean, he even noticed her blowout. 
And I mean, my husband didn't notice my blowout and he notices my blowout and, you know, and, and at first it's, it's really innocent and she's not doing anything wrong. You know, he's funny. He makes me laugh. He's, he's so thoughtful. He brings me coffee after lunch and, you know, then, you know, it escalates a little bit and he's commenting on her Instagram, you know, heart eyes emoji, you know, fire, fire, praise hands emoji, right? And she finds herself, you know, she finds herself thinking about him and she, she, she hates Fridays because she's not going to get to see him until Monday. And, you know, she, she winds up, you know, has a project and she has to stay late one night. And, and in this, the two of them find themselves working together and he opens up about his marriage and they connect on this, this deeper level. And, you know, he opens up and says, you know, I think, I think that I made a mistake. I, I wish I'd married someone like you. And, and then in this moment, there's this fateful exchange where he walks by and, you know, gently just brushes across her arm. And she's obsessed thinking, was it? Was it an accident? Was it in, what does it mean? And, you know, she realized that her emotions are out of control, that what she's doing is, is obviously wrong, but it feels so Right. Now she's justifying her, her thoughts and her emotions that, you know, he's what's missing in my life. And, and listen, all I want to do, I just want to be happy. And he makes me happy. And, you know, she goes and tells her best friend and her best friend gives her the counsel like, hey, if it makes you feel good, then it must be good. And step by seemingly innocent steps, seemingly insignificant step, she finds herself barely dressed humiliated and ashamed, thrown to the ground in the streets. And I ask myself in these moments, often in scripture, how, how did she get there? And I realize this, that sin promises satisfaction. And Hebrews tells us, right, that, that living according to the flesh, it feels good in the moment but we do it at the cost of disobedience and the eventual pain to ourselves. Now, I mean, don't even get me started talking about our culture because in our culture, I mean, if there's anything that probably could define our culture, it's that we, we approach life with this relativistic belief system that we are really a culture that's built around relativism and and what relativism is, if you are a time traveler and you're from the 30s and you don't live in the world that we live in, you realize very quickly that our world is governed by a system that says there is no absolute truth, right? That, that what's true for you, what's good for you, doesn't necessarily have to be good for me, right? Like you do you and... And, and, you know, I'll, I'll love you and honor you, and, and you just do what is right for you. But don't you dare try to, you know, oh, oh. You know, do whatever makes you happy, and because it makes you happy, it must be the right thing for you to do. Now, here's a, here's a fundamental problem with a relativistic mindset is that without a belief in absolute truth, truth 
becomes defined by whatever makes me happy, right? And, and that in a culture, when the bottom line is, is, is my personal happiness, happiness then becomes the standard by which I judge my actions, right? That, that if it makes me happy, it must be good. And if it's hard or uncomfortable or causes me a little bit of stress or pressure, it must therefore be bad. This is why in our culture, you, you hear phraseology like this, that, that I know it's wrong, but it feels so right. You know, I'm not, I'm not hurting anybody by doing it, so what does it really matter? And I've asked myself, how does culture get here? I mean, how in just a few short decades have we gotten to this place of a, a, a deeply entrenched, intrinsic belief system that's based on this absolute truth to the place where absolute truth has really no bearings, no, no guiding light to the majority of the population. And I've realized that the problem is that so many people think that happiness and holiness are at odds with each other. They think that if I wanna be happy, I can't be holy. And if I wanna be holy, it means that I can't be happy. Right? And now, here's the truth is that, you know, because of religion, religious thinking, religious teaching, because of wrong teaching, you know, because, you know, generally inside of our culture, the majority of people don't know the Bible, we feel like we have to choose one or the other. I either get to be happy or I get to be holy. Right, this is how I thought when I was in university. When I, I like to feel that I, I really reached the pinnacle of my sin days. Was I was raised a Christian, and I knew that I knew God, and I definitely knew that what I was doing was wrong. But I didn't care because I thought that I couldn't be holy. I couldn't have a relationship with God and still feel or experience happiness in my life, right? Like in my head, based on my upbringing in church, I thought that, you know, if I was gonna be a, a Bible-believing Christian, you know, that I, you know, I needed to wear my, you know, leather braided belt with my pleated khaki pants, and I was just destined to listen to the newsboys for the rest of my life on repeat. Because I honestly thought that happiness and holiness were at odds with each other. Now, let me tell you something. I have since grown, and I have since grown in my understanding of Scripture, and I realize that this is not the case, right? Like, let me tell you something. God is not in heaven right now looking down at you, hoping and praying that you have a horrible day because the worse your day is, the better holiness meter you're going to read. Right, like scripture, John three sixteen isn't like, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that you could be holy and miserable. Right, no, God is, scripture paints a completely different picture of who God is. The Bible says that God is, is good. 
The Bible says that he is a, a loving, compassionate, generous, heavenly father. I mean, this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. He says, if you then, though you are evil, right? He's talking about me, right? Like I would consider myself to be, I don't want to say great because it seems boasting. So I will say I'm a good, but good like Jesus says, none are good but God. I would consider myself to be a good dad. And let me tell you something, I know too well how to give good gifts to my kid. And Jesus says, if you're evil and you know how to be extravagantly, selflessly good, how much more? Okay, now you gotta remember, these are the otherworldly words of Jesus. People have said, Jesus has said a lot of things, but this is actually what Jesus is saying. He says, you think you're good because of how good of a good father you can be. He says, how much more will your heavenly father give you good gifts to those who ask him? Can I tell you what I've learned? That, that, that if we are at odds, if we think that happiness and holiness cannot coexist together, I've realized that we are looking for happy in the wrong places. Or we really don't know what Jesus actually says. You know, I liken it to this story that I read one time. It was a story by Max Lucado. And... If you feel bad for the fish, blame Max. I'm just, you know, just ripping off what he said. He writes this story about, you know, a fish on the beach. And he, he poses this question, you know, can a fish be happy on the beach? Right? You take a fish out of the water and put him on the beach. Is he happy? Right? Is he happy? And the truth is, he's not, he's not happy. Like, he's just like flopping. You know what I mean? Like, he's just like trying to find his way back to the water. And then he starts like asking a whole bunch of questions, right? Like, what if you give him piles of cash? You know, like you're just like making it rain, you know, just he's swimming, not in the ocean, but in tubs of hundos, right? You know, like, like what, if you, what if you prop him up on an amazing, comfy chair and, you know, you put sunglasses on his face so that, you know, he doesn't even have to squint as he lays there and he just tans in the sun. You know, like, what if you, like, pile on, like, margaritas and pina coladas and he's just, like, chilling? I mean, he's living the life, right? You know, what if then he takes a selfie? You know, when it goes viral and it gets 1 million likes and he gets sponsorships and endorsement deals and, you know, you hand him a play, a play fish magazine and, you know, and he's just like filtering through and just loving the tail on that baby. The truth is what? You, you couldn't give him enough good things to be happy on the beach. Why? Because those things are evil? No, this, it's, it's not about that. The, the things aren't, I mean, well, some of it is evil. 
I'll tell you, if you're looking at Playfish magazines, there's something weird about you. But the truth is this, he could never be happy on the beach because he wasn't designed for the beach. And can I tell you something wherever you are right now that, that if you're finding yourself unhappy living for the things of this world, it's simply because you were not made for life here on this earth, right? You were created by God and for God. And because of that, the desires of your heart cannot be satisfied by earthly things. And this is why Jesus tells us that sin always disappoints. I mean, it's going to try to trick you, right, into thinking that it can. But can I tell you that no new car, no new boat, no new man or woman, no amount of likes, no amount of money, no amount of hair or lack of hair, there's no body, there's no pair of shoes that can make you feel so good that it can give you the joy that your heart craves for. Let me tell you, church, happiness isn't mutually exclusive of holiness. I've realized something that, that holiness and, and, and living a life that God intends us to live, it is the pathway to true happiness and joy. I mean, I love the way that David says it in my second year class. We, we go through the Old Testament and kind of break it apart. And this is one of the things that David writes about in Psalms chapter 16. He says this in verse 11. It says, you will make known to me the path of life. And in your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand there are pleasures forever, right? And this isn't the, you know, this isn't the, the fleeting pleasures of sin that's talked about in the book of Hebrews. No, what David is talking about is he's saying, I've tapped into the source of eternal pleasure, eternal happiness and joy. And it's not some happiness that comes and goes. It's not something that the world can give or the world can take. No, this is an eternal pleasure and happiness. That whether it's a good day or a bad day or a good moment or a bad moment, it doesn't matter. Because my happiness, my satisfaction isn't based on those things. And this is why we look at, you know, Jesus doesn't say, right, to this guilty woman, right? We have to remember she's, as, as well-intentioned as she may have been, she is guilty. You know, Jesus doesn't look at her and be like, you know, I'm so... God, I'm so embarrassed. How could you do this? I've been so good to you, and this is how you repay me. You know, oh, God, you're just, look at you down there. So pathetic. That's not what Jesus says. The Bible says that he comes, he gets down where she is, and he reaches down to her, and, and he tells her, listen, woman, like, go and sit no more, not, not because I'm, I'm, he's not condemning her. He's telling her, he's like, listen, there's something that's so much better that you can live for, that, that you can be free from this dissatisfaction, this pain that you feel has been causing you to be a prisoner. 
then leave now, go now. He says, don't spend another moment in this feeling. He says that this is not a fleeting satisfaction. This isn't something that's going to feel really good because you're around me and then you're going to go back home to your husband and it's going to start all over. No. He lets her know this is something that's it's lasting. So the question that I came to answer this morning is what do you do when you feel trapped? Like what do you do when, when you know what's right? You know the right thing to do but you keep doing the things that are wrong. You know, like Paul says, you're like, why do, I, why do I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I know that I should do? Like, what do I do when I'm trapped in this position? You know, and here's the truth that, that some of you are in this spot now, right? Like, you know, you've got this emptiness, this void on the inside of you. And so often people, you know, develop negative eating habits because they're trying to fill something temporary. Maybe you, you know, you, you, you are obsessed with the feeling of buying new things. So you're like a chronic overspender. You know, maybe you know that, that smoking is causing you all these health problems, but you just can't stop. You know, maybe some of you will find yourself, you know, you're, you're critical, but really you're just critical because you have a low self-esteem and so it makes you feel better to point out the flaws of others because when you point out the flaws of other people, it makes you feel a little bit better about yourself. Maybe you're stuck in a lust-filled world and, and you hate the fact that you keep clicking on the things that you know you shouldn't be clicking on, but you're clicking on them anyways and then you fail and you beat yourself up and then you beat yourself up so you click more and then you click more and you beat yourself up and what do you do when you feel stuck? What do you do when you find yourself in a wrong relationship where you go from bad relationship to wrong relationship time after time after time? What do you do? What do you do when you know it's not God's best and you're naked on the ground and ashamed and you can't figure out how did I get here? And this is, what I, this is what I came to tell someone this morning. I came to tell some jokes and talk about some stories, but really I came to tell someone about the faithfulness, the goodness, the forgiveness, and the grace of God. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He says this, and God, come on, we need a revelation of this. God is faithful. He's faithful. He's faithful to me. That means even when I do the wrong things, he's, he's, he's still here. His promises are still good. He still has a high expectation for my future. That even when I am faithless, he is faithful. He says this, God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He says, but when you are tempted, okay, when you are tempted, because here's the thing, God is faithful, but when you are tempted. So temptation is out there. And just because you love God and just because you go to church and just because you sang three worship songs this morning doesn't change the fact that you might wake up tomorrow 
and the temptation is still there. But he says, when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Can I tell you, church, there is always grace. There is always forgiveness. It doesn't matter how deep in the hole you are. It doesn't matter how many clicks you've clicked. There is always a way out. So what do we do when we find ourselves trapped? What do we do when we find ourselves seemingly stuck in a place that we've tried and tried and tried to get out of, but we can't get out? I've learned that every temptation is an invitation to depend on Christ. So what do we do when we feel trapped? I'll tell you, when we feel trapped, sometimes the easy thing to do is to just go deeper into the trap. But I'll tell you, what we do when we feel trapped is that we turn to him. Can I tell you, he's not, he's not ashamed of you. He sees the woman in her sin and he sees this moment and she's, right, she's, she's naked in the streets and, and there's a whole bunch of confusion around it. She's guilty and we see Jesus is not ashamed. But he's also not indifferent. He's not ashamed in that he'll embrace her and love her, but, but he's not indifferent that he says, go and, and leave your life of sin. That this is the way out that you've been searching for. Don't just get up and go about doing the same thing you've been doing. No, get up and go now and do the right thing. There's, there's an urgency to, to get out of the life that you've been living in. Get out of the things that depend on me, not because of some religious expectation. Depend on me because, because you can live a life, you know how you feel so empty, but you can live a life that's so full of hope that, that you can live, you can actually experience the better life that you have been wanting. And here's the thing, Jesus, you know, he doesn't do sometimes what I can do as a dad. When Lola's doing something wrong and I say, you want a spanking? That's like the trump card. That's like the immediate good behavior card that you throw down, right? Jesus doesn't say like, stop it or you're gonna go to hell, right? Stop it, or you know, everything in your life is gonna go bad. No, he, it's not a fear of the bad. Jesus invites her into a longing for the good, right? Because I, I've learned something, is that there's a big difference between remorse and repentance, right? Remorse is, is like, I feel really bad that I got caught, right? Like, if I didn't get caught, I'd feel great, but I'm really feeling bad because I got caught. Now, now re repentance, I mean, if you, if you break down the word to repent, re, re means to turn. Right, and pent, is, it talks about like the highest, right? Like if we were to talk about the penthouse, it means it's the highest house in the building. And, 
And so what Jesus is inviting us to do is don't feel bad at the fact that you got caught. What Jesus is saying is to, to turn your attention from the low things of this earth and turn your focus to that which is above. Stop being so focused on all the low things of this earth and trying to fill the happiness with the low things. No, turn your attention to the highest place, to the high one. And in him, you'll find the things that you're searching for. You know, I heard this statement years ago. I, I had to go search to find it. And it's, it's a re-sentence. A pastor wrote this like a re-sentence. He took all like the re-words. And when we look at all the re-words of all the things that we can do in Christ, it's pretty amazing. So this is what he wrote. He says, if you rebuke the enemy and you return to God by repenting of your sins and receiving Christ, your spirit will be reborn, your mind renewed, and your life rebuilt. You will be reconciled by Christ's redeeming work and reap the rewards of relationship, causing revival in your life to break free. Can I tell you, church, this morning, it's just about the turn. It's just about taking your attention off of the low things in your life that you think are going to bring you satisfaction and turning my attention onto the eternal goodness, the eternal satisfaction that I can find in Christ. So it's all about the turn. It's all about just, I've been so caught up looking at the low things. I've been so caught up looking at all the stuff that's kept me stuck. And what does Jesus say? He simply says, repent. He says, just, just turn your attention to something that's higher. So what do you do when you feel trapped? When you feel caught? When you feel stuck? When you feel broken in shame that you're here again? You know, Jesus doesn't just say like, well, that wasn't good, you know, but, you know, go on. Do whatever makes you happy. No, Jesus says, he says, turn. He says, go now and turn. Leave the low things. He says, I've got a better path for you. He says, I'm not going to let anybody throw stones at you. Don't worry. I'm going I'm to cover you and I'm going to give you mercy and grace. But he says, listen, get up and go be free. Right? You were created. Can I tell you, church, this morning? You were created to walk in the truth. And it's in the truth and only in the truth that you will find lasting joy. So Heavenly Father, this morning, Lord, we choose to turn we choose to, to change our perspectives. We choose to stop being so focused on the low things of earth to create some sort of satisfaction. But we, like David, look to you and say, it's in you that we find this eternal place of joy and peace and happiness. 
I ask this morning for your grace this morning. As so many of us find ourselves stuck and trapped in things that we want to be free of, and this simple instruction to stop trying to fight against the low things, stop trying to get unstuck and simply focus our attention on you. We know you're good, and we thank you for your goodness. I want to pray this morning. Maybe you found yourself onto this stream, and you, like me, like the majority of us, find yourself in these stuck places. And you're saying, I need this Jesus because I need something to repent to. I need something to turn to. I need someone to give my attention and my focus to. The Bible tells us very clearly that we can enter into this relationship with him if we simply just confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts. I'm gonna lead us in a prayer right now. I'm gonna ask everybody in, inside this building, in whatever place you are, whatever room you are, just to repeat this prayer out loud. Say, Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Jesus, I believe that you are the son of God the savior of this world, sent from heaven to redeem me of my sins. I repent. I choose to turn, to turn from all the sin in my life and focus my attention on you. I'm done with the low things of earth and I'm ready for the fullness of your presence. I declare with my mouth that I am saved. I am forgiven, and I am redeemed. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.